This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, and welcome to a freshly pumpkin-spiced episode of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and speaking as a Virgo in my season, I'd just like to say, you're welcome. I'm Brandon Tinsley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine, and I'm mostly here to express queer outrage that it's still too hot for me to wear my leather jacket. Never too hot for you to wear your leather jacket. <laughs> I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender. And I unlocked a new lesbian achievement level last night by shaving the back of my head on my own without so much as a mirror or a friend to tell me whether it was good or not. That is epic. I love it. But luckily, this month, we have everyone here in the D.C. studio together for the first time. So y'all can tell me whether I did a good job or not. After our recording. Everyone's so cute. (laughs) You're right. Uh, So I will admit that shaving the back of my head was uh, possibly seasonally inappropriate, considering that it's September now. There's a chill in the air, finally, and class is in session, which is why we're calling this episode The Orientation Edition. Our theme this month is queer acculturation, the ways we learn to be queer, to socialize as queers, and inhabit our queer identities in a society that mostly teaches everyone to be straight. First, we'll quiz each other on gay and lesbian tropes, then talk about how we learned to find our places in gay culture and whether queers need to learn queer culture at all. Then we'll bring in Slate contributor Evan Urquhart and trans activist Andy Bowen for a conversation on what it means to learn gender as a trans person. We're also going to be kicking off our inaugural advice segment to answer a listener's question about how to present and feel sufficiently bisexual. But first, let's get into month two's round of Pride and Provocations. That's right. We're still here. We're still queer, which means that we're still proud of and provoked by our LGBTQ fam. So, Brian, what was a queer high or a queer low for you recently? Well, I hate to be a downer for the second month in a row. Not a downer, just a provoker. Just, I'm provoked. I'm so <laughs> provoked. But I have I have a provocation uh, again this month. So I was just at the uh, NLGJA conference in Palm Springs, which is a the National Association of LGBTQ, LGBTQ Journalists. And that's a lovely gathering. All great. But as some folks may have seen in recent headlines, something went down on Saturday night, which was the closing reception. That definitely provoked me. Um, For one thing, this closing reception was sponsored by Fox News, which is like bizarre at a queer conference. Yeah, so that's not even what I'm talking about, though. That's like I I actually skipped this reception for that reason, but I heard what happened afterward. So apparently in introducing like the reception, a Ohio weatherman who was a volunteer host actually said, ladies and gentlemen, things and it's. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not kidding at all. This very much happened. Um, And 
so obviously that is extremely offensive to any trans and non-binary folks in the room, not to mention just like the idea of a queer space. Now, the good news is that the NLGGA Association did issue a statement about this incident afterward, uh, you know, saying, of course, that it wasn't their position and, you know, sort of apologizing for the distress that it caused people in attendance and the man who spoke it, who said the offending lines, resigned his membership in the organization, which I think he should have done. But um, what I want to say quickly just about this is that, like, obviously trans identity is not a joke, uh, but that's not just because it's, uh, you know, we're being PC or just because it's, like, rude to talk like this. It's because gender prejudice is a thing that should actually unite uh, queer people. Even if you're a cis gay man, like, part of the discrimination that you face is is based on gender performance and gender, gender expression. And so, really, we should all, like, get this. Even if, even if we're not trans or non-binary or, or gender non-conforming ourselves, we should understand that this is, like, a fight we all have in common. And we should really respect each other if for no other reason than that. So that's all I have to say about that disgusting thing that happened. Wow. I, too, am provoked. I'm glad that it appeared to make headlines, even if I didn't see those Mm -hmm. headlines. I have a pride this month. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my partner and I have another pair of queer friends who's a couple. And we've all sort of agreed personally that we're not going to have children. This wasn't a pact we made among the four of us. but um, So we decided to inaugurate a gay double dating childless practice whereby four times a year we're going to surprise each other with double dates. And so our queer couple friends surprised us with our first double date last weekend. And it felt like platonically romantic and great. Uh, we went tubing down a river yeah, we had a great time. And, you know, I also like the idea of reimagining later adulthood as all of my friends have babies to think of it as a time for queer adventures and not just settling down or parenthood. Oh, so are you picking the next double date? Yeah, I can't say it here because they definitely listen to this <laughs> podcast, but possibly I, I might uh, update you guys next month. Okay, we'll look forward to it. Hopefully it won't be a provocation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So I, too, am feeling pride. Um, Mine is maybe very basic of me, but also very me. But Troy Sivan's new album came out. Mm -hmm. Bloom. Um, Bloom, indeed. I in particular loved one of the songs that he has, 17, which is the one that leads the album, uh, mostly because it it traffics in potentially very murky stereotypes. Uh, So he talks about when he was 17 and really learning to... Uh, kind of explore his sexuality and hooking up with an older man. Um, and so on his face, that's something where it's like, well, oh, like you can easily just... Dan, are you playing you it? Take. And he said, age is just a number, just like any other. We can do whatever, do whatever you yeah, so it's something that deals with uh, really tricky tropes, um, but he does it in a very smart way. And this is maybe me being a little bit provoked at myself and that like I never ne- I was never necessarily attracted to Troy Sivan's music or sort of his artistry. It was just something that didn't jump out to me. Um, but then like a lot of my gay friends like really love him. And so I was listening to the album and I was like, oh, this is like really smart. Um, this would have been like a really awesome song to have you know, a decade ago when I was 17. But, you know, I'm I'm glad that it exists now for people who care for that sort of music. That's awesome. 
So, like Christina said, today we're turning our gaze to the cultural <laughs> and so that's gaze uh, to the cultural. We got it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> In case you didn't, to the cultural and social aspects of queerness uh, that we learn, like on top of our basic identities, right? So it's like why I, as an avowed homosexualist, am wearing this pink stripy demi sweater instead of. Um, I don't know, like a Hanes beefy tee. Hang on, what's a demi sweater? Because that just looks like a sweater it's to a, me. Okay, to describe, it's like a, it's a, it's a very light sweater. It's very thin, and it almost has like crop top qualities. Like hmm. that's that's because it's too small, really. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, I thought it's that, like I guess that's up, what makes it gay. It just like, looks like a gay sweater. It's a gay sweater. Yeah, but what? what that's the question. Why <laughs> is it a gay sweater? How can a sweater be gay? Fair. So as a way into this subject, we thought we would play a little game that I'm going to call without anyone else's consent, Mo or No. <laughs> So each of us, I think, has brought a few multiple choice questions about the various queer subcultures uh, that we are uh, involved in. And to help enrich this this game, we've actually invited our lesbian godmother, June Thomas. <laughs> Hi, June. Into the Hello. studio to join to join in the in the questions. So, Hello, children. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, mother. School us. <laughs> um, so why don't we start with Christina? What do you have for us? First off, this is a question that my college roommate and queer role model asked me when we were preparing to go to my first lesbian bar. Apparently, I I was not enacting the proper culture in my (laughs) appearance because they asked me, what do you call a lesbian with long nails? And here are your four uh, choices. Straight, single, high femme, pokey pokey artichokey. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think June should be allowed to answer. <laughs> She's like eagerly stepping up to the mic. Can I just say, I think the answer might be all of the above. Ooh, interesting. Mm. Including pokey pokey artichoke. Totally. <laughs> PPA. Should we? Yo, 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 PPA. So I will say that my roommate said this to me in a way that implied that like this was a joke they had heard before. I do have an answer. My answer is high femme. Brian? I'm going to go with straight. The answer is single. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yes. Not every person with long nails is high femme, obviously, but that could be a clue to someone's gender identity. And yes, I think a lot of people see a woman with long nails and assume she's straight because of that. Well, but I meant single. I, I meant uh, I was thinking like straight because it's like maybe she's like having like a, a tourism moment, like right, like she doesn't. Ooh, interesting. Like I understand why you don't want to have long nails, like as a lesbian, but uh, but yeah, that's what, that was my, <laughs> maybe I overthought it. <laughs> no, I mean I think June's answer is ultimately the correct one. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But I think the joke is that if a lesbian has long nails, she's probably not having sex. Right, mm. right. That, which isn't to say you can't, but <laughs> certainly makes also, things more difficult. Also, if you could explain yeah. how, yeah. Please, send an, please send us an email. <laughs> <laughs> All right, someone else go. Mine is a yes or no question. So can a queer man pass as straight if he wears a baseball cap, but either sideways or backwards? Oh, my God, yes. Wait, can he pass for straight if mm-hmm. wearing the hat backwards or sideways? I think it's a queer thing to wear a baseball hat backwards now that I think about it. I can't imagine anybody wearing it sideways <laughs> and being queer. It's my understanding that it is a trope of gay porn 
that men turn around their baseball caps. That's true. When they're when about, they're about to, to. When they're, yes. Uh, that is true. I, I agree. I don't think sideways works. I think you're right, Christina. That's not possible for it to read. But backwards, you said, can they pass for straight? No. I think if you have your, a queer man wearing a hat backwards would not pass for straight. My answer was actually yes. Because <laughs> I was just like, would I ever, A, would I ever have a baseball cap? That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> and would you? I would not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was going with yes, uh, just because to me it's such a such an anomaly. I never have a cap on me. I never mm. would, even if I do, it would probably be like, I don't know, some kind of like graphic cap that I would definitely want to wear straight so people could actually know who I'm trying to rep. Yeah. I have one baseball hat and it says Butch Please on it. I <laughs> could definitely not pass for straight wearing that. I have one. I have only one as well and it says uh, I Heart Daddies on it. So <laughs> I love I how we both have the world's merch, merch only from, uh, from Daddy Hunt. Yeah, but yeah, I have yeah. millions so of baseball caps, you guys. <laughs> Y'all are weird. <laughs> See, we're not a monoculture. Mm-mm. Apparently. Mm-mm. Okay. Which of these is not a common acronym on gay hookup apps? NSA, PNP, CBT, DDF. I really thought that I would know at least one of those (laughs) acronyms, and I don't think I know any of them. I know that PNP is a real, what is it, pack and play? Uh, It's pride and provocations, (laughs) (laughs) Jane. Exactly. It means drugs. means drugs. (laughs) What is it? it. Something in play? Party and play. Party and play. I'm clearly not thinking of this from a gay men's perspective. What was the one that begins play? with D? DDF. Uh, DDF, yeah. Not Down D- to fuck? No, that's DTF. Mm-hmm. DDF means something completely different. Daddy don't fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy do fuck. I like that, but that's not. That's NSA. Not no screwing allowed. <laughs> Quite the opposite. <laughs> oh, okay. So that is a real one. Ah, no, you're, you're, no we're not supposed to play it this way. <laughs> You have to choose. You have to choose. Brian is a rules gay. <laughs> What's the, what was C again? CBT? Uh, CBT. Okay, that one, because that's either cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy or whatever the uh, marijuana tincture is. Or is that CBD? Anyway, no it's idea. not that one. That's my answer. That's okay. my answer, too. It's C. Like, I know what yeah. the other ones yeah, are. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had no strings attached, uh, uh, party and play, cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> And uh, drug disease free, which is a very ah. gross one. Contentious, yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, good job. If it's summer and a gay guy doesn't wear a tank top and short shorts, is he actually gay? Whoa. <laughs> That's the existential question of our time. I think good that can happen, but only if he's also wearing a sweatband. Actually, worn mm. qua sweatband. Yeah, that's very Mark Joseph Stern. That's what I was thinking. Mm, <laughs> it is Mark Joseph Stern, yeah. Well, he could be wearing like a mesh, a mesh pair thing, of pants. a swimsuit. I, I think there are options. There are options. Or he could be wearing no shirt, body paint, body paint, Twitter. or, you know, he could be incredibly butch. So I'm going to say mm. yes. Mm-hmm. My answer was yes, but he would need some other sort of redeeming mm. fashion choice. <laughs> so good point. Yeah, very fair. Among gay men, when someone is a friend with whom you don't wish to sleep or have slept with and don't wish to repeat, he is blank. A, family. B, a queen. C, trade. D, sister. Aw, I'm going to say sister. Me too. 
yeah. just by process of elimination. Yeah. Did so. Oh, that was easy. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> I didn't That's either. That's very but sweet. Like, yeah. Aw. Yeah. Sister gay. She's I my like sister. Hmm. Yeah. All right. I have an acronym that you guys are going to need to decipher. Mm. What does LHB stand for? Lesbian holdback. <laughs> That's when you go to a potluck <laughs> and you're just and you not don't want to sure. eat all the lentils exactly. before the vegans get to eat. So you say LHB. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? Close. I do have some multiple choice okay. questions. Oh, or multiple choice options. Lesbian heartbreaker, lesbian hockey bro, little hot butch, or long haired butch. Wow. I know some of all of those people except <laughs> the hockey players, but you know, hey, maybe I know maybe I'll get fine. lucky soon. I'm gonna go long haired butch. I was gonna go with little hot butch because it seems fun to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with long haired only because I think that must perhaps that is like a, a special category that needs uh, mm. demarking. I'm not sure. Yeah. It is, and it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I associate this with, like, an L.A. lesbian. Mm. Oh, like, see. a lot of long-haired butches with full mm. face of makeup. Mm. Oh. I have known many in Washington, D.C., too, though. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing. I know many in Virginia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Careful. <laughs> yeah, I'm being rude now. <laughs> um, that was my last, my last good question. Yeah, I'm done Same. with mine. Yeah. Yeah. We're good. Thanks so much, June, for being a part of that. Anytime. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Wow, I learned so much from that. <laughs> uh, I feel I feel like I am I'm edified. But I think it's interesting because it leads us into a thorny question that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are sort of having in response to the game, which is why do queer people need to learn how to be themselves at all? Um, or maybe a better way of putting it is like is learning queer cultural codes and practices essential to being a queer person? Um, I imagine that we here in the room have thoughts about that. So let's dig into it. What do you guys think? Yeah, something that I was thinking about when I was writing these questions is the thin line between a cultural norm and an insulting or reductive stereotype. So it was hard for me to think of something that was well-known enough that it would apply to many lesbians and also well known enough well known enough that you guys might know it but not so much that you would definitely know it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you know something's true and not reductive and not unique to my friend group and i kind of came to the conclusion that anything that i think of as a gay cultural touchstone is very much a product of my own race and class and subculture and the fact that I live in a city in D.C. in particular and my particular friend group and that something that seems like a gay thing to me might seem like a straight thing in Seattle. So this all came together for me when I was on Instagram and found a really good lesbian meme account. (laughs) And then a couple days in, the uh, administrator posted an anti-Robin meme huh. in in sort of a way that was like, oh, a lot of lesbians like Robin and I don't. And oh. I was, mm-hmm. I took a front to that. Yeah, as you should. Yeah. And then I was thinking the other 
anti-Robin thing, or actually it was a pro-Robin thing that I took a front to, was the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, which I think of that song and most Robin songs as a very queer and lesbian songs. And, you know, it offended me that a straight po- a podcast with straight women was using it. Mm. So I think it's hard to say that something is a gay thing, that, that something cultural or a fashion is a gay thing when, you know, obviously our communities contain multitudes. Right. Like I, I agree that it's also I'm hesitant to say that something it's essential to gay or queer culture to perform a particular way or to know a certain thing just because it, it does essentialize and, you know, a, a very complex identity and identity that manifests in various different ways. And so I think for me, Christina, like you were saying, a lot of it was with the latter, with, you know, performing that identity is it's a lot of it's a product of how I grew up and um, especially a product of um, what was going on in the culture at the time. And so I think about like, you know, like a decade ago when like when I was coming out, it was it was peak Lady Gaga and mm-hmm. peak Kesha. And so I was just like, yes, like this is a way for me to find this family, find this community, um, besides the fact that I genuinely love that music, is to um, kind of – it was the, the aesthetics around that sort of culture. And so I, for me, I think it's been a lot of that – I think that these things are very important and they have value, but you know, being more reticent to kind of extend it as a mandate as a part of queer culture sort of thing. I think it's absolutely a mandate. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think that you know you you both make good points. I mean, there's uh, certainly some of the uh, more specific things in our in our game questions uh, are certainly not something you know a person needs to know about or participate in to be a like quote unquote good good gay. Mm-hmm. But I do tend to believe pretty strongly, actually, that like queer cultural connection, if I could speak kind of broadly about it, is pretty crucial to like having your your identity mean something. Um, I mean, to me, gay culture is like what's interesting about being gay. Like the fact that I'm attracted to men is is a, is something, but it's there's not you know much to it beyond that if that's all I thought about it. But all of the the sort of cultural practices and and sensibilities and jokes and tropes, all, all of that stuff is what makes it fun uh, mm-hmm. in some ways to be to be queer. Yeah, I think I draw a line between knowing about queer culture and queer history and actually practicing it. Mm. So. You know, I agree that being gay is more about than just who you love and who you sleep with. Like, love is love. You know, all loves are the same thing. I'm just like a straight person except my partner's a woman. Like, that has never rung true to me. And I eye people who speak that way with suspicion mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. And I always just want to scream when somebody who has been out and queer or gay for a while says like, oh, well, like, what does queer mean? Or like, why? What did the HRC do? Like, what is that? And why? Why are people mad at that organization? Mm-hmm. I'm like, Google things. Like, you have a grace <laughs> period of maybe a year, where you're ramping up to your queerness, and you're reading blogs, mm-hmm. and you're talking to people, and you're learning about all the things that you missed because you weren't queer and tapped into that culture. And after that, I think it's kind of your responsibility to be engaged in that community, especially for people who have access to that kind of information and community, for people who, for whatever reason, don't have that sort of network to uh, obtain that information. I think it's maybe something different. But as far as clothing and slang and music, 
I think that's mostly a privilege to be able to tap into mm-hmm. that and not necessarily a mandate because, you know, I've always prided myself on being different and weird. Like I think about myself in high school and I wanted to be such an outsider. And then as soon as I start identifying as queer, I'm like, what all, what queer things can I wear? You know, like <laughs> what song should I be listening to? What poets do I need to know about? And tapping into that community was definitely a source of strength and mm-hmm. a source of feeling of family. And, you know, I think sometimes it helps to know what the mainstream queer culture is, even if it's so that you can reject it. One thing I wanted to ask us all to, to, to respond to is, like, what was the moment, if you, if you remember a specific moment, where you were, like, consciously acculturating, right, where you were consciously choosing to learn something or to, to get a, a certain kind of clothing or an album or something like that as, like, a, okay, this is necessary for my engagement <laughs> um, and I'll share I'll share one quickly just to start us like I I specifically remember when I when I came out freshman year of college I think about a month after I came out I realized I needed to get some gay clothes and so on Black Friday of that fall after Thanksgiving I went to Macy's uh, on 34th Street and bought my first pair of gay jeans <laughs> uh, and I was very proud of them I felt like it was like a way of like showing you know, that I, this is who I am and I want to be a part of this larger sort of style culture, at least, that that I had sort of recently come into. I think back on these memories so fondly. The first is when somebody played for me Decepticon by mm. La Tigra. And I was like, this really sounds qu- queer to me, but I don't think I know who these people are. And then I got into a whole, you know, Riot Girl, like looking at Kathleen Hanna's past discography and then listening to Men, which uh, that band is even more so vocally queer and addresses queer themes in their songs um, in a really fun way. The other moment was um, when I noticed that everyone was wearing carabiners and holding their (laughs) keys on rings of keys. Mm. And I was like, I got to get me one of those. (laughs) That seems like the gay thing to do. Yeah, I think mine was, uh, do I want to be this basic in twice yeah, in the same episode? <laughs> um, but it was going to a Kesha concert with one of my friends. Um, this was around the end of undergrad. So mm-hmm. back in the like, we are who we are days Aww. of Kesha. I remember I made, I bought us these bright neon orange shirts. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put a fuck ton of glitter on them. Yes. Um and I remember like standing there toward the end of the concert and just like having the time of my life. And there was this straight guy next to me with his girlfriend. And I remember looking at him and being like, why aren't you having fun? <laughs> I remember my friend had to like kind of like hold me back a little bit. As I was like getting like aggressive. I was just like, she is on stage giving us a gift. <laughs> and you are just standing here just swaying as if you don't care. But that was the first time when I started thinking more about like, okay, what are the things that I – do or wear or talk about or talk about effusively? What are the sort of giveaways? Uh, but for me, it was, it was Kesha. So it sounds like there was like a lot of joy in those moments for us. But uh, I wonder if any of us have ever like resented pressure to, you know, learn gay culture, to, to sort of dress in a certain way or talk a certain way. I think that I've been able to pick and choose the elements of queer culture that that don't feel like a put on for me. Um, so I've never resented it at all. At all, I think it has made me feel connected to a history and it has 
helped me bond with friends um, and create a sense of queer family. The thing that does make me sad is recognizing where these cultural touchstones or, or the the limited number of cultural touchstones for lesbians in particular mm-hmm. means that we're still using the same ones from the 90s. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever resented feeling like I've had to act or signal a particular way if I've if I've ever felt I've, I've been in situations where I felt not sort of like queer enough like gay mm-hmm. enough about things um, I do think that a point of frustration for me is when I think a lot of times especially people like more our age um, sort of like late 20s and their 30s can be fairly quick sometimes to kind of dismiss past sort of important planks of queer history mm-hmm. um, or not even to dismiss them, but I think criticize them out of hand. And I think I always think that there's a certain more effective way to to level critiques against something and to do it in a way that's still able to take into consideration like what certain queer things that were important maybe like in the 90s, but like have kind of fallen out of fashion or seen in some way as like not useful, but to think about what they still meant for people then. I think I had, I, I'm someone who so deeply dove into gay culture when I came out that I, I don't think I've ever resented the the, the general pressure. I, I've never resented that. But I do – I definitely feel like uh, there are pockets of of gay culture where I feel, like Brandon was saying, basically like maybe not queer enough. Christina, what you were saying made me think about some writing that you've done in the past on – sort of this question of whether like lesbian identity itself is is declining or if people aren't using that word at least as much to identify themselves. Do we think, is this whole question of this like episode going to be like irrelevant in, in 15 <laughs> or 20 years? I hope not. Because everyone because will just be, you know, label us. Not having a sexuality. Yeah. I hope not. And I don't think so. I think there still are subcultures under those umbrellas that people can tap into And I also think that the best communities that I've been a part of make room for people who don't sort of have binary identities. I think lesbian history is a hard one just because a lot of people think about lesbian history and they think about trans exclusion, which in large part is true, but certainly is not the whole story. And uh, when you try to think about something like the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which was a cultural touchstone for so many people. It's not anymore, I think in part because it's not happening, but I definitely think for a, a generation of lesbians who still are alive and exist and are lesbians, it still is. That's a hard thing for uh, somebody who is you know younger and, and came up always knowing like that trans women are welcome in women's spaces and should be, um, and that trans women are and can be lesbians. It's hard to think about those kinds of touchstones. Like you were saying, Brandon, without saying, you know, let's forget that they existed. But, you know, there will always be signifiers that cultures of people have, you know, whether they're queer or not, or whatever brand of queer they are. And I also kind of believe that the straight heteropatriarchy is too strong to like totally <laughs> embrace just like, hey, we're all queer in some way. Like I feel like there will always be some sort of signaling from straight people to be like, I accept you, but also I want to make 101% clear that I am not kind of like of you sort of thing. 
Interesting talk, guys. Uh, <laughs> given that we're all cisgender, though, I think we've been mainly looking at this question of, of sort of how we learn to be queer from the point of view of sexual minorities. So I think it would be good for us to uh, think about what queer learning looks like in terms of gender identity. Uh, and Christina, I think you're going to take us to school on that. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We've got a couple guests on the show today to think through what it means to learn gender as a trans person. We've got Slate contributor Evan Urquhart, who is joining us via the magic of Skype from rural Northern California. Hey, Evan. Hello. And we also have trans activist Andy Bowen, who's calling in from Slate's New York studio. We're so happy to have you on the show, Andy. Thanks for having me, Christina. So my first question for you two, as we're talking on this episode about learning how to situate our queer identities within larger communities. Did you feel like you had to learn to be the gender that you are in the world after spending your childhood and maybe some of your adulthood being socialized and outwardly identified as something else? Yeah, and I'm still learning (laughs) Um, very intensely. You know, so I was socialized as a boy and – My first moment of revelation, I think I was like seven years old and I saw this woman with a in in a shopping mall in Glen Burnie, Maryland with like a whole baby tee, like the band hole and very heavy eye makeup. And I was like, that's who I want to be. So, you know, my first model was like, oh, I just I want to look like this particular thing. And then (laughs) fast forward many years and like once I've actually like you know, not that everybody has to medically transition, but I medically transitioned around the age of 20, 25, 26. And, you know, I went to um, social work school um, sort of as like a break from the working world while I was sort of settling into this new version of myself. And I noticed that I still took up a lot of space um, in a way that I think dudes do. <laughs> what kinds of behaviors are you talking about? I think, you know, like, Talking too long, which I'm mm. probably doing right now. No, um, you're not. <laughs> being the first to raise my hand uh, and like really like acting like I had some sort of expertise over almost every subject that we discussed. Um, just like having this like really intense confidence. Evan, what about you? Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, just first to respond to what Andy is saying, um, because I think I just have looked at it looked at like the differences between people and their socialization from a really different side of things, which is like, like I really want all people to have the kind of sense of security and, and even entitlement and sense of their own power that men have. And I do think that that's a lot of like how I kind of experienced like, like learning to be a man, which was more about just forgetting things that had gotten in my way. I had a very awkward period like the first year after I came out where, you know, it was always like, how am I sitting? How are people looking at me? Am I masculine enough? 
am I doing this, which is feminine? And am I doing that, which is feminine? And really kind of since then, which has been about two years since then, it's been like, no, forget all that. Like, just like be yourself. And if sometimes yourself is a little feminine, every guy I look at has things about them that are a little feminine. If, you know, who yourself is, is more masculine than you felt you were allowed to be like before in the before times, like that's also totally fine. And it's been much more about like just relaxing and not trying to think too much about my new gender versus my old gender rather than, you know, trying to inhabit something different. Were there particular touchstones like cultural, behavioral or otherwise uh, that either of you latched onto as like this is something that telegraphs femininity or masculinity and this is something that might not have come naturally to me, but I'd like to adopt? The experience of being male is very much the experience of being the default in the culture. So I always felt like I really was socialized with that idea of what being male was as much or more as I was socialized with the idea of what being what a woman was. When I was reading books, uh, pretty much all of the protagonists were boys or men. Uh, You know, watching television shows, it was not at all difficult to see strong male, you know, role models in the culture. Um, I identify as straight. So, you know, it's very much like, like the world has always been giving me the message of what being a straight white man is and is supposed to be. And I think understanding myself as trans has led me to actually question some of those messages more. And, you know, I I went through a pretty lengthy period of not quite knowing where I was going to fall. Like, was I going to be like a particularly gender ambiguous person or did I feel really comfortable being like living in the world as a woman? And so like my early touchstones are like Prince and David Bowie and people who just blurred gender Mm, boundaries mm -hmm. like made me feel comfortable, especially like when Prince would sing as a woman. So songs like If I Was Your Girlfriend (laughs) really, really, really uh, set something on fire inside of me. Uh, So, Andy, the one thing you said that was really interesting to me was your fixation on this whole baby tea, which is totally something that I would have also fixated on in my youth and probably still would. To me, that seems like you were responding to a particular gender presentation Uh and not just, you know, um, femininity or womanhood in general, that because there's not just one way to be a woman or a man. And so I wonder if you or you, Evan, have felt pressure to adopt sort of traditionally masculine or feminine mannerisms or wardrobe signifiers in order to pass or in order to be taken seriously as your gender? I've proceeded, uh, I think, to generally dress in my off times kind of like a mid-90s mall punk. Yes. (laughs) So that has stuck with me. Um, In general, I I just feel comfortable presenting mostly as femme. People have told me they perceive me of having having passing privilege, right? Um, This notion that like, you know, people look at me and it's like, oh, I can't tell that you're trans. And people will say that kind of thing to me and I roll my eyes <laughs> because, you know, why Why should it be a problem? Let me back up for a second and say, like, it is, it is a privilege to have passing privilege. And like many people, I'm sure, would like drop all the resources and money and anything they could to get that for safety and other reasons. Like, is a very lucky situation to be in. I am currently feeling a pressure actually – to mark myself as more queer presenting and trans presenting 
and then I usually come off. So currently, my pressure is how do I queer myself more? Do I get a do I wow. get a trans symbol tattoo? <laughs> that is really interesting. It's really interesting because coming from having been very visible um, as a member of the queer community before I transitioned, uh, for many years I, I sort of looked and, and took on the, the role of a butch lesbian. And I've, I've found it really comfortable to be more invisible, to not be the queer person that everyone knows or, or the, you know, sort of walking billboard for queer acceptance. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what were Andy's uh, experiences with portrayals of transgender people in the media, because I grew up, you know, with some gay acceptance and and a really really negative attitude towards trans people, and I think that really has shaped my sort of fear of coming out. I didn't come out until my thirties, and also my fear of being identified as trans. Yeah, I mean, you know, mine were you know, overwhelmingly negative. I was born in 1986. You know, it's like basically every major cultural touchstone I can think of until until I'm in my mid-20s involving queer people is basically negative, right? But when I started living, like, as a woman, you know, whatever, full-time, <laughs> I also at the same time f- fell into doing trans activism, a queer and mostly trans community. And so... When I was figuring out who I was as a trans person, my world was just really awesome, badass trans activists. So, yeah, I mean, like, yes, I'm full of shame and probably internalized transphobia from cultural touchstones growing up. But, like, also, like, the the world I came into as, as like, an out trans person was, like, really positive. So, um all those things have sort of led me to this place now where I am. Like, I'm interested to know from both of you if you felt a calling to tap into trans culture. And if so, how did you approach that? You know, what websites did you visit? How do you learn things like lingo and also maybe the things that are essential for you to uh, have information that you need to live a safe and healthy life as a trans person? Well, I have sort of a funny story about that. Um, so as I've said, I came out in my 30s and, you know, in the back of my mind, I always had this idea like, well, if I was a kid today, I'd probably be trans. But like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to bother with all of that, you know, things that, you know, that young people are sort of doing, exploring their gender. And my wife actually went away for an entomology conference. And I said, I'm just going to give myself one weekend to to just take this idea seriously <laughs> And so I went on YouTube and I looked at, um, you know, trans men who posted on YouTube and I went on Reddit and on the uh, RFTM subreddit and almost immediately it was just clear to me that there was no way <laughs> that there was no way that I was not going to transition. And I don't know how I'm going to face the embarrassment of coming out after, you know, spending so many years not being this thing. But like there was just. It was like a light bulb. I, I found out everything that I could in that weekend, and I kind of had a whole timeline of, you know, I was in Tennessee at the time, so counseling, then a letter from my therapist, then HRT, then chest surgery. It was all planned out in the course of, you know, 48 hours. And when my poor wife came back, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> she knew that something was different. Wow. Do you think that you were avoiding those kinds of communities online because you were worried about what you might find out about yourself? Oh, absolutely. I think I was I was very much trying not to learn. And I was I was right, apparently, because it really was it just was a, a watershed as soon as I, you know, was willing to look seriously at myself in that way. What about you, Andy? I will second uh, Evan's uh, sort of endorsement of the vlog world. <laughs> <laughs> Vlogs of other trans women. Um, yeah, when I couldn't sleep, that's what I would watch. And it was kind of creepy because for a period of time, this is when I lived in D.C., a, a couple of like the women whose like vlogs like sort of convinced me to <laughs> transition, like started moving to D.C. And I like I would meet them and I'd be like, I shouldn't let them know. This is creepy. I'm not going to let them know I've been watching their videos. <laughs> that they've been. I mean, it's public, right? It's not weird, but it's weird. I'm sure they would have been flattered, actually. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I may I may be sending some emails later tonight. So once that happened, though, um, I started, um, you know, I looked up the local like anarchist inspired trans activist group and uh, started going to that, made friends with folks who were trans and just sort of fell immersed in the community. So, you know, for those of us who are out as trans in 2018, you know, most of us at least experienced, you know, probably puberty and often a bit of adulthood, you know, in the wrong uh, gender category. But, you know, in the future, I think there's a good chance that many of the trans people will have transitioned younger, either right around puberty or even earlier than that. Like, what do you imagine the difference will be of understanding yourself as trans and growing into being a trans adult if you don't have to go through that sort of traumatic process of wrong gender, wrong gender, wrong puberty, wrong gender, wrong gender, then starting everything. Oh, my God. You asked like the question that's at the center of the dark part of my soul. I am so glad that that is the world that young trans people and gender nonconforming people are growing into. Right. Like, I think that that's awesome. For me, I define it as like me specifically going like across gender like it has been really important for my own sense of self to have made this voyage you know like I still hold on to these things like there's there's a lot of me that was just like the me that has always been that I'm like I'm proud of having carried across this this vast expanse of gender and at the same time if other if young kids don't have to hear, um, you know, some conservative politician denying their humanity. That's really cool. You know, for me, I had a very rough time in my 20s. I spent a year homeless, <laughs> which was perhaps the roughest time. But like several years before and after that were, were really pretty dark. So it's hard not for me not to look at it as, you know, the, po the boyhood I could have had, yeah. the sort of normative developmental trajectory I could have been on, sort of the lost, wasted time in my life where I was extremely dysphoric and kind of didn't know that's what it was mm -hmm. and was really flailing around. So, yeah, so I very much don't want young people to have to go through this. And, you know, the, as you as a policy person knows, um, the risk for homelessness and joblessness and violence is 
it's just staggering in our community, uh, especially trans women of color, but, you know, sort of across the board. But on the other hand, I do think there's a lot of richness in the cohort that we're in of getting to experience different sides of the human experience. You know what I mean? That that richness of, and variety of human life and richness and variety of suffering is very valuable, even though I kind of want to wash it all away forever. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm really conflicted. Yeah, I'm just like... I'm I I'm I'm fine with myself where I am, and I don't want anyone else to ever. I want anyone else to have to suffer. <laughs> so anything to reduce. Suffering. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. This was a really a really interesting uh, and edifying chat. I hope that uh, both of you come on the show again sometime. Thanks, Christina. That would be great. Be honored. Thank you. At the end of the last episode, we mentioned wanting to feed on your queer dilemmas, as Brian put it, uh, to start an advice segment. We received lots of really smart, really challenging questions, uh, but our intention is to stick with this episode's theme of queer acculturation. So we're going to zoom in on a big by dilemma posed by one of our listeners who asks, how do you come out subtly as bi? Gay and lesbian people can allude to a partner and people make the correct assumptions but it seems to take going to great lengths to get the buy point across when you don't want to make it such a spelled out thing. This person also said, how do you help yourself feel bi? Uh, so with a disclaimer that the hosts of the show are not bi, I'm wondering if you, Christina, could share some of your queer wisdom on this. Sure. I remember when I was dating both men and women, I would try to... and. I'm not sure if I identified as bisexual at the time. I think I just used the word queer. But um, I would definitely try to just nonchalantly drop in a gender of a partner into the conversation, which is hard when you don't have a partner. And I think that that's something gay people, especially gay people who don't immediately ping the gaydar, have to deal with all the time. I feel like I'm constantly coming out and it never feels not awkward to be like, my girlfriend, you know what I mean? It always feels like, oh, you know I'm coming out and I know I'm coming out, Mm -hmm. but like, let's all just act like this is totally normal and no one's learning something new right now. But for somebody who's bi, it is different. We asked a bunch of our bi coworkers about this here at Slate, and one person I thought put it really well. She said, just drop anecdotes about your dating life like it ain't no thing, but make a point of using pronouns. I was on a date with this woman. A few years ago, my boyfriend at the time said, blah. This could even be weeks apart. Trust me, they'll notice. Brains are so wired toward compulsory heterosexuality that any disruption you give to that notion will be felt, even if it's subtle and matter-of-fact and drawn out over a period of time, and their brains will do the math. Aha! Bisexual. Actually, it was really interesting. Another listener wrote in who asked a similar question, um, a bisexual woman who said she cut her hair short, she dyed it a funky color, and still felt like because she was with a cis man, people weren't reading her as queer. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm constantly reading people like that as queer. And so I would just say to that listener and, and possibly this other one, like, maybe you're doing it. And maybe people are clocking you that way and you don't know it because it's awkward for people to assume things about you or tell you that they're assuming something about you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, the Some of the friends I talked to who are bi said they also – their answers hinged on giving anecdotes to 
kind of drop those hints. One thing I did think about was um, because our brains are wired so much to be like straight or gay, like to think of those binaries. I wonder if they'll think like, hmm, so this guy said that he dated a guy or like he dated a woman, you know, a few years ago, but like he just mentioned that he's like dating a man now. I'm, I'm wondering if they'll think like, oh, he like wasn't out at the time. Uh-huh. They'll like see it as some sort of like, oh, he finally came out or sort of thing as opposed to both of those relationships were uh, very intentional and a part of the identity that the person identifies with. Uh, but just another thought that I had because, yeah, our brains are colonized by yeah. patriarchy. <laughs> another thing, if you're feeling comfortable coming out on social media, I know some of my friends and some of uh, the colleagues that I spoke to were saying posting on National Coming Out Day is like mm-hmm. a very popular and accepted thing to do to say, hey, in case you p- friends on Facebook or Instagram didn't know, I'm bi mm-hmm. and it's bi coming out day. As far as feeling bi goes, um, we heard from a lot of people that finding queer and bi representation in media has been really important to help you know, find people who mirror who they are and grapple with similar challenges. We had Crazy Ex-Girlfriend mentioned as a show with a great bisexual character named Daryl. There's Mara Wilson, who made her name as Matilda in the uh, titular comedy, and who tweets a lot about being bi and has spoken on a lot of podcasts about being bi. There's also Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which has a great bi character. You know, I think surrounding yourself with bi people, whether fictional or real, can be a good way to make that feel like more of an identity and not just a a, a liminal space between gay and straight. Mm-hmm. The only thing I think I would add, well, aside from bathing yourself in bisexual light lighting, <laughs> which is that pink and blue lighting that was all over the internet, um, was it last year that was? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, th- th- there's... One, the, the, like the only thing that I would say is that, that if you are the type of person who enjoys, not everyone is, but if you're the type of person who enjoys challenging those that binary thinking in some of the ingrained ways that a lot of us monosexuals walk around viewing the world, then there might be like some joy and pleasure to take in that. You know, that might feel bi to you. This person also asked about telling somebody who already knows you're interested in them that you're bi. And one of our colleagues said, and I agree, that it's always good to mention soon, you know, Mm -hmm. first date or right at the beginning as you're getting to know them, in part because you get rid of anybody who doesn't want to date Mm -hmm. a a bisexual person, like any biphobic people, too, you know. And second of all, it sounds like it's an important part of this listener's identity. And so you really don't want to feel like you're keeping something so important from them. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in. We really enjoyed reading your questions and we'll hopefully include them on future episodes. We would love to hear your dilemmas. Our email address is outwardpodcast at slate.com. Please write us. So that's about it for Outward this week. But before we go, we would like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. And sticking with our theme, we thought about a very important thing that gay people have to learn that really isn't taught in schools or in the average household, or even in some friend groups. And that is how to have gay sex. So we are each going to share here in my very workplace a recommendation (laughs) that helped us figure that out. Brian, this is your workplace too. Why don't you start (laughs) us off? Uh, It is my workplace, and uh, there are HR professionals here. uh, (laughs) Just in the other room. So... uh, 
I think I have two quick ones. One is like a little bit nerdy and historical, and it's it's I'm answering the question in the sense of like how I learned why I have sex the way I have sex. Uh, it's a documentary from 2005 called Gay Sex in the 70s, um, and it is a just a sort of like archival um, interview style documentary with folks who lived in the 70s and with resources from that time uh, looking at the gay sexual culture sort of between Stonewall and the onset of the AIDS crisis. I also think uh, a good thing to do is just visit visit and support your queer sex shop. I like to walk into one of those every so often, even if I'm not even looking for something in particular, just to expose myself to a world. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them you can do that now. No, uh, to 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 be exposed to a just a world of sexual expression that some of which you know turns me on some of which doesn't but I love knowing that it exists and you know you might find yourself getting some new ideas that is a great recommendation Brandon so mine is less what helped me and more what like would have been a cool thing to see in popular culture but uh it was from the it's from the second season of Dear White People where uh, Lionel is having sex with Wesley. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's very practical yeah. stuff. Um, and, and it's hilarious. And so they're trying, and it's not working. And then uh, Wesley's like, get the lube, get the lube. <laughs> and Lionel just, like, does this, like, one little squirt in his hand. And then Wesley, like, takes the bottle. <laughs> and I counted. And he does, like, ten pumps. <laughs> um, and so I thought it was – it took this – this act that's, you know, it's one of the messiest and most emotional and but also most beautiful things that people can do and turn it into something that like wasn't gross spectatorship, but also was like very relatable. And I think a lot of queer men in particular could probably be like, hmm, been there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really uh, sweet moment. Yeah. And it, I, I thought it was a really great scene. Um, and it did that all in like two minutes or something. So I'm so glad we're being sponsored by a lube manufacturer this month. <laughs> <laughs> My recommendation is Crash Pad, which mm. is a queer porn site. My college roommates uh, shared a subscription to this site when I was first coming out. So I just basically mooched off of them. And it's really hard when you're when you're a woman trying to figure out how you're supposed to be with another woman. And maybe you've seen lesbian porn that was made for men. <laughs> because uh, the way I think of it as I don't even think of that as two women having sex. I think of that as like they're at a slumber party together, just sort of like stroking each other's hair or something. (laughs) Um, The people on Crash Pad are definitely having sex. And uh, one of the things I like best about it is there are people of all different body types in terms of size and shape and race and genitals and prosthetics and gender presentation in all sorts of permutations and in multiples of one or more. And uh, they use lots of toys. There are lots of trans and gender queer people in it. And I know a lot of sex professionals or sex columnists will encourage people, especially people who are exploring fetishes, to watch porn, see what turns you on, see what intrigues you. And for people who are lesbians or queer women, trans people of any gender, people who sleep with trans people of any gender, it is really hard to even find things to watch to be like, what do I like? And how would you do any of that? So Crash Pad is a really great antidote to that. And I'm so happy to report that it is still around. So you can visit it on your home computer. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. That seems like quite enough to keep you busy between episodes of American Horror Story in decisive early fall weather. <laughs> but also, please send us feedback, topic ideas, advice questions. And you can do that via, again, via our email, outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for the episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Slate Podcast Senior Managing Producer June Thomas enswaddles us like a cozy <laughs> lesbian blanket. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on October 17th with a special episode for LGBT History Month. Christina, Brandon, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Ciao for now. Ciao for now.